0: Hello and welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation spaces, the ways we get around and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I am Cheryl Gross-Glazer, your host, and today we do the first of what I know will be a recurring Series, sort of um, intermittent series of covering films and TV that portray our public spaces, our public transportation. Um, and I'd like to concentrate on the positive light rather than the negative one. We won't be going to something like Pelham 123, for example. And today we talk about uh, Roman Holiday. Which I wanted to be the first one because it immediately came to my mind when this this topic popped into my head. Um, A movie that just, where the, the city itself is a character. But before we get to our movie, Roman Holiday, we have a related moment of equity. Um, So the the movie Roman Holiday falls right in the Hollywood blacklist period, and it involves two professionals who had been blacklisted, who were involved in the making of the movie. During the early 20th century and through the Great Depression, many people joined or sympathized with the communist or socialist parties, Um, but that tide of public sentiment that was very pro-worker, anti-capitalist, but particularly pro-Soviet, was very much out of fashion by the end of World War II. In Russia, we had Soviet repression, we had Stalin, and we had an ideological enemy, The Blacklist was created in 1947 in that atmosphere of heightened anti-Soviet public opinion in the U.S., a congressional committee, the House Un-American Activities Committee, accused the film industry basically of harboring communists, but generally really idealistic actors, writers, directors, and others because many of them had been associated during the Depression in some way with communists. And this was a high-profile way of taking on you know, and seeming tough against um, you know, the hidden threat of communism especially among people who were influencing American culture in such a big way. Going to the movies was a a very common pastime, and it really affected how Americans saw each other and how they were seen around the world. And this congressional committee predated the McCarthy winch hunt. Probably kind of led up to it, if you think about it. Um, The famous question of the committee to those it called before it was, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? But the committee did not so much want an answer as they wanted to publicly humiliate witnesses through coercion, because there was a threat of the loss of one's livelihood, um, to get people to name others, to name names, and to name friends. Those who refused or were named by others were blacklisted. Even those in entertainment suspected of communist affiliation or sympathy were blacklisted. Um, And they were unemployable in films, television, radio. Writers could sometimes uh, get someone to cover for them. You know, but but life was still hard for many others. Blacklisting meant the end of a career that that was never resuscitated. For a very few, such as Lucille Ball, popularity and humor and how they handled the accusations were enough to keep the public on their side. Encyclopedia. dot com has it right when it said. And I quote, liberals, intellectuals, artists, labor leaders, immigrants, Jews, and African-Americans found themselves targets of HUAC investigations. End quote. HUAC was the acronym for the committee. Finally, in 1960, for the film Spartacus, Kirk Douglas, a screen idol at the time, and the director of his film, Otto Preminger, insisted that Dalton Trumbo be given credit for screenwriting. Uh, Preminger, uh, Trumbo had been blacklisted. Preminger also gave Trumbo credit later that year for the movie Exodus. Trumbo had Im- been involved in several uh, had been involved several years before in Roman Holiday, and um, giving a a blacklisted writer credit broke the blacklist. Uh, Um, Not before many lives were ruined, but it it did show a certain bravery on um, their parts, although the blacklist was not at its height by that point, but still people weren't being hired. And now to 1953, Roman Holiday. The film was shot at a studio in Rome and on location in various places in the city. It was shot in black and white because filming outside in color was too expensive. The movie stars then-very-established leading man Gregory Peck and newcomer Audrey Hepburn, who was about 13 years younger than Peck. Eddie Albert, you may remember him from Green Acres, uh, played the first ever romantic comedy sidekick for which he received an Oscar nomination, as did his co-leads. Audrey Hepburn won the Oscar. And Gregory Peck uh, had insisted on her getting, you know, top billing in the movie. I think he was first, but she was right after. and that, that had not been planned. Uh, two people who were on the Hollywood blacklist permit, uh, participated. One was Trumbo, who was a script writer, and eventually received credit when the DVD came out, and uh, an assistant director. So the general theme is the movie follows a beautiful, fairly innocent European princess who is on tour. Her schedule is way too full. She wants to see Rome, and maybe she wants to see anywhere without um, an entourage, without crowds around her, without scripted remarks, and far from official events. And I did read that the story was inspired by a (laughs) then-yarming, young charming princess, Margaret. And Margaret was the younger sister of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, at the time of uh, Roman holiday, had just become queen. She was married, and she was quite reserved. So she wasn't the fun personality of the family. Princess Margaret, however, was a media sensation. She was young, she was pretty, she was eligible for romance and marriage. Um, And just to give you, like, putting the family in perspective here, Elizabeth was born third in line to the throne behind her uncle, who was crowned King Edward VIII, and he soon abdicated to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Um, But as the king, Edward was the head of the Church of England, which did not permit remarriage after divorce if previous spouses were still living, which Simpson's exes were, so he abdicates. But had he married a suitable partner and had children, Queen Elizabeth would have been just one more relative of the monarch. So by the time Robin and Holiday was released in theaters in 1953, Margaret is very well-known, and she had a not-quite-approved a not love affair of her own. Uh, this man was, had been a war hero, he was well-known to her family, and he had divorced his wife, and thus he was unacceptable to the Church of England and to its, its leader, um, Margaret's sister. The lawyer, law of royal succession was almost changed to allow for the marriage, but after a separation of about two years, whilst the constitutional succession matter was being debated and sus- decided, Margaret gave up her love in case, in, instead of having the law changed and, and marrying uh, this gentleman. His name, by the way, was Peter Townsend. Okay, so this is the backdrop. This is sort of an imagining of someone like Margaret in A Love Affair um, as she goes out and about. So the movie is... is much more g-rated version uh imagining of someone like margaret uh free of the bonds of royalty meeting a good-looking american and the film opens with different locations quickly seen during the credits then there's a newsreel um you know a pretend newsreel the princess is on a european tour crowds are everywhere there's parades in her honor events and then uh, we meet Princess Anne at, at an official event. She's played by Audrey Hepburn, of course. She's of some unknown European country at a palace in Rome, one of the cities she's hitting on this European tour. And she's being honored. Uh, it's, everything is very formal. And our first hint comes quickly that we have a royal who was bored out of her mind. She's greeting guests, but underneath her gown, she keeps taking out her shoe and kind of playing with it with her foot. She almost loses the shoe. That's kind of a funny little scene. Um, And she only gets to dance with very old officials. Uh, after the ball, while she's getting ready for bed, her assistant is giving her the uh, uh, itinerary schedule for the next day. The princess starts screaming because she can't stand yet another day of meaningless speeches, presentations, and gifts she won't keep. Uh, the the assistant treats the situation as like a little mental health issue requiring medication. Let's let's calm this this person down so the next day we can get on with things and the princess is given a sleeping pill but before the pill takes effect princess Anne escapes from the palace after you know kind of tiptoeing through the palace she escapes on a food and wine truck that is leaving the palace um She's on her own here in this truck, and we've been situated in the story, at least her part of the story. She hops off the truck outside the Roman Forum, and more on the location uh, in a little bit. We're then switched to a cigarette and booze-filled room in an apartment at a poker game, uh, where we see Gregory Peck, who plays Joe Bradley, and Eddie Albert, who plays Irving. He does have a last name, but he's mostly referred to as Irving. And a bunch of their buddies. They're sitting around. They're shooting the breeze. They're playing poker. Uh, Joe leaves the game because it's late, um, and it's it's he's outside. It's middle of the night or very late at night. It's quiet. There's no one around. And Joe uh, is seen walking past the Roman Forum where he spots a young woman, decent, decently dressed. But she's lying down. She's practically sleeping on a bench right outside the Forum in front of, and I hope I don't mispronounce it, in front of the Arch of Septimius Severus. Isn't that a name out of Harry Potter? But it predates Harry Harry Potter by quite a bit. So let's go off the film for a few moments moments right here to briefly describe... uh, the Roman Forum, and this this arch, first the arch. The arch dates back over 1800 years to 203 CE. It was built to uh, celebrate this Roman emperor's victory, that's uh, Septimius Severus, his victory in modern-day Iran over the Parthians, who ruled over their own very large empire. And if you want to go down a rabbit hole, there's plenty of information on the Internet about these folks. Uh, the arch has one main uh, arch, it has three arches, but one main one in the middle, which had been for traffic, and two smaller ones on each side. Uh, it's decorated with friezes and sculptures of scenes from this military campaign, this successful campaign, and, um, and also honoring uh, Bacchus and Hercules, who were two favorite gods of this emperor. The arch would originally have been topped by a sculpture of a six-horse chariot with the emperor uh, and with both of his sons uh, beside on horseback. Unfortunately, and you may be aware of this, but being the, uh, the son of an emperor of a large empire does not necessarily promote a healthy brotherly relationship <laughs> and nine years later instead of the brothers ruling with one mind as their father had advised on their deathbed indeed he made sure that the, the sons would be co-emperors uh, one of the sons had his brother murdered and the living son then had the inscription on the arch changed to remove his brother's name and to add and I'll definitely mispronounce this uh, Optimus Fortissimus, definitely didn't get that right, Principibus, the best and mightiest princes, plural, and that refers to the father and that son who had his brother assassinated. The living son also makes it illegal to even mention his brother and had his... Uh, image, his name uh, erased from coins, monuments, artwork, etc. And in a perfect illustration of what comes around, goes around, only four years after this dastardly deed, their surviving brother is himself assassinated uh, by a pissed-off bodyguard in league with military officers. So we're going to avoid another tangent on the Roman forum. I'm just going to briefly describe that. It was a plaza in the center of ancient Rome. It dates back to the founding of the Roman Republic, perhaps even back beyond that, and um, and from history.com, I quote, originally a marketplace, the rectangular shaped area sited on low lying land between Palatine Hill and Capitoline Hill was home to many of the ancient city's most impressive temples and monuments, end quote. And this is, of course, why the arch was built here. Uh, the forum was used at various times for elections, speeches, trials, meetings, and even gladiator matches. Back to the movie. So we're in front of this very uh, famous ruins in Rome at night on the bench uh, with the arch in the immediate background. The princess is very chatty, but she's obviously not kind of with it. She's in this drug state. Uh, she recites part of one of her inane speeches, even. Joe can see that she's in no shape to be on her own, and he gets a taxi, and... Um, he tries to get out at his apartment and get her to tell the cabbie her address, but she's so under the influence of this sleeping medication, that's not happening. Okay, and we're going to have a little coffee here. Okay, a dr- Joe really tries hard to leave her with this taxi driver, but he's not having it, so in goes the princess to Joe's apartment. This is the 1950s, and Joe takes good care of her. There's no hanky panky. He doesn't try for anything, uh, though he's a snarky guy. You know, he's he's not um, he's not a boy scout here, but. He very nicely gives her his classic pajamas to wear. He leaves her alone to undress. She falls asleep in the bed, even though he told her that she would get the couch. Uh, Joe ends up sleeping in, and he's terribly late for work. He's a reporter, and he was supposed to have been part of a group interview, a press conference with the princess that morning. Meanwhile, during the night uh, at the palace, the princess is discovered missing, and a decision is made not to alert the press... anyone but her parents, the king and queen, whom we never see in the movie, by the way. Uh, And as an excuse, these chaperones just inform the press that she's ill. So Joe, it's the morning, he's missed the press conference, he's at his boss's office, he's telling an embellished lie about what the news conference was like with the princess that morning, and he's caught red-handed in his lie uh, because the boss has the newspaper with her picture on the front. Uh, And it's then when he sees this photograph that Joe realizes who is sleeping in his apartment. Um, Joe calls his landlord to keep the princess there because this could be a huge scoop for him if he gets access to her he's thinking an actual interview with her a personal exclusive this could be worth tons of money to him um, $5,000 his bo- boss loves the idea they make a bet they make this $5,000 bet which would put Joe on easy street if he wins but deep in debt if he loses and he's already behind in terms of uh, owing money to his boss so it's, it's a big deal to him financially and he learns that the, uh, from his boss that the princess has one more day to be in Rome before she's scheduled to leave for Athens. So he goes straight home. He confirms that the newspaper photo is indeed a photo of his sleeping guest. And he actually takes the newspaper and compares the photo to uh, Audrey Hepburn's sleeping face. Um, So he confirms that it's Princess Anne. He carries her back to the bed from the couch. I won't go into every little detail of how she got from the bed to the couch. But anyway, because he now knows that she's a princess and he wants this interview. But it becomes clear it's not really an interview. As it would be duping the princess into like spending time with him. And he thinks of a day out, doing what she feels like, being a regular person, um, and getting photos by his sidekick, Irving, whom we had met at the poker game. So Joe starts asking questions even before uh, the princess is fully awake. And when she does, when she realizes that she has engaged in this very uh, bad behavior, bad to her of spending a night alone in an apartment with this man, and that it's one thirty when she's waking up she she kind of freaks out. And by now, we're forty eight minutes into a two hour movie. So where is the city? Of Rome. All we've really done is situate our characters, who they are, and kind of what their incentives are, and how they're each lying to each other. So, one thing we do know about TV and movies is that there is always something about the main character's place of residence that is probably above his or her financial means. In this case, the apartment is tiny. Um, it's it's really more of a, a studio, um, but the, there's this huge patio right outside it that has a great <laughs> a great view of the neighborhood and the local landscape. Okay, and I'm not going to go into it because we'd be here forever, but there's lots of cute comic moments in the movie with local Italian actors, and it's really worth watching, even, you know, especially a second or third time just for them because they are such a, a bonus. So Anya, as she tells Joe her name, never lets on what her uh, background is. She asks for money, which she'll pay back so she can get back to where she's going. Um, five minutes later, the couple's still, you know, they're still chatting. They're still very, kind of formal with each other. Um But neither revealing who they actually are, we go out into the streets of Rome on a picture-perfect sunny day, and this is obvious even in black and white, that it's, it's sunny beautiful weather, and the city is alive and joyous. There's lots of people in the street, food vendors selling, the princess buys shoes on the street, there's kids, kids underfoot and running around. Um, and then she rounds a corner, and she's at the Trevi Fountain, and Joe is following close behind, which she is unaware of. So, Let's talk about the Trivi Fountain for a minute or two. It's a very famous spot in Rome. You've probably seen pictures of it, but it feels kind of different when you're there. And I will get to that part. So the Trevi Fountain sits atop the terminus of an ancient Roman aqueduct that led to the first public baths that were built in Rome. It's been the site of a fountain since before the f- current fountain was constructed, although I, I didn't easily see the history of that fountain. And though although a pope commissioned the building of the current fountain, it took 100 years, a different pope, a second design contest, and a new architect before construction began. And the Trevi, which is a a Baroque, very fancy fountain, took more than 30 years to build and was completed in 1762. The god Oceanus, not Neptune is portrayed in the middle with a strong, and that's, and that, that distinction, that's another rabbit hole you can go down if you want to, is uh, Oceanus is portrayed in the middle with a strong rebellious horse on one side, a calm one on the other to symbolize the changing moods of the sea. Uh, The hot fountain is on the back of the Palazzo Poli and it takes up much or most of a plaza where three streets come together, hence the name Trevia Trevi. in sight of the Trevi Fountain, Anya quickly uh, sees a, a little salon or barbershop, and she goes to get her very long hair cut off into a fashionable, short hairdo, which marks a step in her transformation. And Joe spies on this. He's hanging out at the fountain. Um, as an aside, uh, this, this little plot device was also used about a year later in another Audrey Hepburn film um Sabrina where she changes her hairstyle from long and girlish to short and sophisticated and that movie had also had older male stars and in that case quite a bit older William Holden and Humphrey Bogart I believe is about 30 years older than her and he plays the love interest <laughs> so back in our movie Joe's waiting outside the barbershop salon uh, we see the fountain as a public space almost a playground or something akin to like a water hydrant you know on a on a busy street in New York, that kind of thing, with kids playing and climbing in and around the sculpture. There's tourists hanging out and taking photos. Uh, Joe is slightly creepy here. I have to say it was the one movie moment where I thought, okay, this, if you were making a remake, this would not stay in because Joe kind of is a little creepy as he tries to convince a teenager to let him borrow her camera uh we're in the salon in and out the salon guy invites anya to a dance that night on the river but she just she declines but she's obviously intrigued and then we're quickly at the spanish steps uh across and i am going to definitely uh mispronounce this across from the fontana della barcata fountain of the boat The steps are used in the movie as they used to be in real life, basically, for public seating, a kind of casual streetscape amphitheater. Um, But before talking about the history of the steps, you should know that in 2019, there was a new law passed that made it illegal to sit anywhere on the steps, punishable by a fine of I don't know if it's up to or a definite fine of 400 euros. And I have to say that's like not allowing people to sit on the steps of the 42nd Street Library in New York or on the steps of the Met there. I can't think of a D.C. equivalent. Maybe by gallery place, the portrait gallery steps. You always see people sitting there. I mean, it just takes the life out of it. I don't know whether people are actually um, adhering to that law, though. I don't know. Um, so the Spanish Steps, that's only their name in English, (laughs) were funded by a French diplomat to connect the Piazza di España, so you can see where that name is coming from, below with a church that was owned by the French at the top. This is a, a very steep hill. Uh, the Steps are in a neighborhood made famous by, uh later English expats. John Keats lived next to the steps, um, and that's where he spent his final days as he passed away from tuberculosis at age 25. There's also a British tea shop that was opened by two English women in the 1890s, and it's still in business today. And the steps are, are referred to as Spanish, and the piazza is named for Spain because the Spanish embassy, which predates the steps by hundreds of years, is located there. In Italian, the steps are known as la scalinata, meaning the staircase, or in full, la scalinata di Trinita dei Monti. And I know I am mispronouncing that, so to the people of Italy, I apologize. Okay, so in the movie, we're at the steps. It's it's If you've ever seen them, it's kind of dramatic, um streetscape and there's usually lots of people around and on the steps and that's what we see and Anya spends her last bit of the cash Joe gave to her to buy the gelato and she uses the bottom of the steps Um, she doesn't sit down, she kind of leans against a pillar uh, to lick her cone of gelato there's plenty of people sitting and walking um, and I have to say many of whom would not be happy today to know that they're not allowed to sit on the steps So, Joe runs into Anya. Obviously, he's not running into her. That's what it seems to her. He's been on her tail the whole time, but he approaches her. She says, oh, you know, kind of, oh, gosh, I need to get a taxi back. She's still hiding her real identity. And he's basically kind of like, what the rush, it's a beautiful day. Why don't you take the whole day to do some, you know, some fun things in the city? You know, whatever you want. Um one or the other of them mentioned sitting at a sidewalk cafe and that they can go around together um, and she tells Joe a lie here that she's playing hooky from school and that she had been given a sleeping pill the night before Joe of course still not letting on that he's a reporter and that he's actually um, kind of using her to get a big scoop and a payoff rather than just you know an ordinary expat in Rome so no one's telling the truth, and in that way, it's it's all kind of like a little bit of, like a uh, an informal Shakespearean comedy. As just like in Shakespeare, the audience in a, is in on the ruse from the beginning. So the next scene, they're at that sidewalk cafe. It's next to the Parthenon on a big open square. Um, it's it's not crowded. It's not you know uncomfortably crowded, but there are lots of people around. So it has that, that lively atmosphere. Um, The Parthenon is a former Roman temple that that became, surprise, surprise, a Catholic church. Um, That's a theme when you're in Rome. Like, uh, uh, you know, that history of, you know, sort of worship belief systems is is very interesting there. And the artwork, you know, incredible wherever you are. So, finally, Joe asks what... uh, Uh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Finally, Anya asks what Joe does for a living, and he says that he sells fertilizer, another joke of sorts because of the type of journalism that he's planning to dish out with this story. Eddie Albert, Irving, shows up, and there's some slapstick around um, Joe getting the message to Irving to refrain from pointing out the obvious, which is that Anya either um, is the spitting image of this princess, or she's this princess herself. Next, we go quickly to the airport. Um, her, her handlers, her official handlers are there. They're waiting, and off a plane comes uh, a long line of law enforcement or spy types in suits, presumably to search for the princess and to retrieve her. Then we see Joe and Anya playing tourist at the ruins of the Colosseum excuse me, I mean, you know, you can't be anything more, any more of a tourist than going to the Coliseum. The camera spans the whole place between, before we see our, our folks. And then quickly after our lovebirds are on a scooter, we see a trolley, we see cars, Irving is driving. Um, It's, it all seems kind of dangerous, I have to say, but it's a romantic comedy. So we know nobody's going to get hurt. Uh, we see our couple on their scooter. I forget how exactly they get the scooter, but, um, they're on this scooter traveling past the Capitoline Museum and the Colosseum, both iconic Roman sites. Um, Irving's following in the car and taking photos, um, And I'll just say that the Capitoline Hill was considered the center of the Roman Empire, and it's one of the seven hills of Rome. It's also a a pretty famous site. Okay, so then Anya, by accident, gets the scooter going on her own. Again, I'm not going to go into every detail because we'd be here for three hours. But she somehow gets on the scooter, and it kind of starts almost by accident. She can't quite figure it out. She's driving without any idea of how. Joe jumps on the back, and mayhem ensues. The scooter plows into a cafe and a street art sale, all miraculously without crashing into any person or destroying anything. Very skillful navigating. But is speeding as well as violating, you know, every and any traffic law, which the police finally notice, and to add madcap to mayhem, the Roman police are in pursuit on motorbikes and in Jeeps. Then we're at the police station uh, where Joe uh, reveals his press identity to the police but claims that he and Anya are newlyweds. All three are let go, Joe, Anya, and Irving. When they get out of the station, Anya asks about the press pass, and Irving and Joe dance around that, um, basically saying that they had been good liars. And the background image is of a site to be determined. um, That's, I think it's the Tempio di Portuno, an ancient temple of the first century um, B.C., later turned into a Catholic church. See the theme? Uh, Then for the Mouth of Truth, they're right near the Mouth of Truth, Um, they go in, it's it's sort of like, uh, this little indoor area where they're alone, nobody else is waiting. It's called the Boca della Verita, or Mouth of Truth. Uh, it's a very funny scene that was filmed in one take. Joe tells Anya that, um, if you're a liar, your hand will be cut off or stuck, um, if you put it into this Mouth of Truth. And since he knows that she's lying, um, he's on to her hesitance um, to put her hand in. He puts his hand in, and that provides the comedy because he pretends to get it stuck inside the mouth. Then we're at a place called the Wall of Wishes, and although this wall still exists, the wishes are long gone, and the location is somewhat distant from the center of Rome. And I won't go into that rabbit hole. Uh, Joe and Anya then go down to the Tiber for dancing. Um, They're at the bank of the river. You see um, right there the Pont Saint Angelo. This is a bridge as well as the Castle San Angelo Fortress. Um, and, And just so you know, he's paid for everything the whole day, you know, since she ran out of her money. And she's been out of money for a while. So the Pont San Angelo Bridge as well as the Castle San Angelo Fortress were built in ancient Rome. The fortress holds the mausoleum of the Emperor Hadrian, and the bridge was built by Hadrian <laughs> in a bit of pre planning there, to provide access to the mausoleum. But we all know that Rome became Catholic, so the bridge has statues of saints built at either end of the bridge under the direction of Pope Clement in the 16th century, with statues of um, angels that replaced earlier aging ones, In and these current statues were uh, put on in the late 17th century. Uh, this is one of those spots that you commonly see in Europe by rivers where the light is so beautiful, either at, at dawn or at sunset, and a lovely space to watch that. It's a pedestrian bridge now. Okay, just drinking more of my coffee. Particularly good this morning. All right, so in in the movie... Life is being lived in the space on the river. There's outdoor dancing and dining here. Lots of couples are dancing. Our couple, our couple dances. Um, the plainclothes spies are out in full force, searching nearby. And um, at the river, she tells Joe, you know, that he's such a kind person and completely unselfish. And Joe, of course, you know, he feels. Pretty bad um, about his lying. You know, he's he's not a complete, you know, jerk. Uh, She then runs into the guy who who had cut her here earlier, and they dance. And then Irving arrives while she's off dancing, and he takes a photo while no one notices. Um, But this army of plainclothesmen are arriving. They're walking down the steps to the river, and then one of them spots her, and he steps in to dance with Anya, and he calls her, Your Highness. So she knows the game is up. She runs away. She's screaming for Mr. Bradley. I don't know why she doesn't scream Joe, but she screams for Mr. Bradley. Our three escape, but not before. Punches are thrown, men thrown in the river. Uh, Anya gets into it by hitting some man over the head with a guitar. By now, the police are all over the place. Anya and Joe end up jumping in the river and swimming to shore. Uh, But when they, they... Get out of the river. It's, it's in a very quiet and dark spot. They're soaking wet, um, and it's an intimate moment, and Joe kisses her. And he, from here on, the tone of the movie uh, changes significantly. And they're not in public anymore. We veered away from comedy into drama. Irving finds them, and he drives them back to Joe's apartment. In the apartment, we find them seemingly a little while later. Uh, the princess is in a very closed robe up to her neck, and Joe is already in dry clothes. Um, his hair isn't, doesn't even seem to be wet. No one is still. No one is telling the truth. But they are very much more serious together. It's quite 1950s in terms of gender roles, but but. It's as if they're talking in a roundabout way of marriage and a future together, while never directly addressing these issues. And then uh, we have Joe driving in a car with Anya as if a scooter were too whimsical. You know, that part of our day out and about is over. Um, As if to show that our couple is, is mature and serious... There's no more scooters or buses or trolleys around. Uh, They're outside, but from that moment uh, where they come out of the river, they're in private. And the car seems to express the weightiness and the adult position of of them and their relationship. So in the car... And I'll call her the princess. Now uh, she says she has to go. Um, just, just kind of leave her off here at this at this spot. It's not exactly where she's going. Um, and Joe embraces her. They both seem to be not saying what they both know that she's the princess and she's obligated to return to her duties. They have a moment alone, both sad. Uh, Very quiet, not saying much before she goes off, but first they embrace and kiss again. The princess and Joe look into each other's eyes deeply, then she walks off, and Joe watches and stays in in that spot, he doesn't follow her, Um, he stays as if he hopes that she'll come back, and she doesn't. She's next seen with her staff at the palace, and she informs them that were it not for her responsibilities to her family and to her country, she would never have returned. It's evident that she left a girl, and she returns to the palace a woman. Uh, Joe and the princess are both seen looking out of their respective windows, Then we see the morning of the next day. Joe's boss shows up, and uh, Joe lies, telling the boss he didn't get that exclusive he thought he'd get. And the boss doesn't quite believe him; it takes some convincing. Despite rumors that the boss had heard and Irving showing up with an envelope full of photos, Joe insists that they have nothing. They never got this access to the princess. It becomes clear to Joe to Irving, excuse me, from Joe's behavior, what's going on. The boss orders Joe to go to the princess's news conference later that morning. But before we go there, Irving draws Joe into um, a conversation. He shows him the photos. They're laughing and joking. And there's big money at stake. And Irving needs this money. And he's not the one who has been in this romance. But Joe can't do it. He can't turn against the princess like that, um, and Irving leaves. We're next at the, the palace for the news conference. It's an overwhelmingly and pretty large, uh, overwhelmingly male press corps, and lots of them. Uh, Joe and Irving are standing in front, not quite in the middle, come more, a little bit more off to the side, but not the very side. The princess comes on stage wearing what looks like, I swear, my aunt's 1950s wedding dress. Um, And my aunt, by the way, I have always thought, looks like Audrey Hepburn. I mean, very much so. And my aunt is now well into her 80s, and I've got to tell you, she still looks fabulous. So Audrey Hepburn, as the princess, answers questions from the press joe makes a statement um in code he's one of these reporters asking a question and he makes a statement which she understands right they're they're talking like in their own secret secret way coded um and she responds in kind so they're they're having this private conversation in public she then breaks from her script and she says uh that rome was her favorite part of the trip which she'll never forget And then she announces that she wants to meet uh, the members of the press. And they're actual reporters, by the way, who are are in this scene. Down the line, um, that first row, but not at the very end, are Irving and Joe. And it's as if the air gets heavy in the room. Joe Bradley introduces herself. She acknowledges him and moves on, um, meeting others, um, but not skipping a beat. One would never know. She looks back one more time for a good look at Joe, tears in her eyes. When she meets Irving, uh, he gives her an envelope as a gift. She peeks, and it's the pictures of her and Joe together, and she realizes everything. Uh, The reporters all leave. You know, within a minute or two, they're all exiting, except for Joe, he stands there alone for some time, and then he walks across the large, empty room. Slowly, we see him and hear his footsteps. We're led to believe that something profound had happened to these two people that they'll never forget, and the movie ends. So what kind of Rome do we see in the story Um How does it participate? I think you know I've talked quite a bit about that, but just a little bit more to just uh, just uh, focus on Rome. The couple are primarily outside on the streets, enjoying city life in a city filled with people. They don't visit churches, cathedrals, or museums, and these are also sites for which Rome is very famous. No. The Rome they experience is the Rome of the public spaces and the streets. They're not searching for any of the famous sculptures all over Rome, although some of them happen along, you know, they happen to see along the way, you know, really except for the Colosseum that you kind of consciously have to go to. You don't you don't just, you know, step inside. You have to actually go there and get in. This is a couple that's portrayed um, through the city as free and spontaneous to make the most of their one day. And when they're going from place to place, it's mostly in the fresh air on that scooter. And despite the actual danger of the scooter, it's portrayed as um, young and fun and a completely safe form of transportation. So... It's the scooter, which is spontaneous versus, if you think about it, buses or trains. They don't spend time looking for parking. They don't spend time waiting for buses or trains or paying for them. There's no grocery shopping. There's no sitting at desks or in parking lots. No waiting on lines. They go to everyday places and world-famous sites. And they're admiring how the average Romans live in the outdoors with noise and commerce and beauty and liveliness. Rome teaches the princess about life unscripted by being on the street as she sees children playing, people having conversations, shouting. She's exposed to a world of spontaneity with laughter, uh, without schedules, or without, you know, such strict schedules. It's a world of life in a beautiful city on a sunny day. It's a day of joy. It's a day of finding love, of slowly realizing the enormity of the sacrifices that she's making and that she and Joe are, are, are making, are going to make. And Joe gets to view life unjaded by cynicism, And gets to appreciate that ordinariness, you know, these scenes that he's walked by, probably a lot, um, he gets to appreciate them through her eyes. You know, the, the, the specialness of sitting at a cafe or just hanging out at the Spanish Steps. And the Romans we meet along the way are wonderful. They're, they're honest. They can be judgmental, um, although not prudish, but judgmental, mostly friendly, and they, they tend to steal the scenes that they're in. Their Rome and their this movie are well worth seeing and that's where I'm going to leave you today. Thank you so much for listening. Contribute your thoughts um, through social media, through Twitter and get links to resources. There's lots of links about the movie about Princess Margaret Margaret about the sites um, with the uh, episode notes today. Thank you very much, and have a great day, and I'll see you in two weeks.